Not had enough of me yet? Well, good news. You can now listen to William Hill's Upfront with Simon Jordan podcast right here. The series, hosted by me, gives you a front row seat to big name interviews discussing their career successes and failures. Sit back and enjoy. If you're going to build a pyramid, you need a broad base. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it falls over. If you look at what we've got with the finances and distribution, we've got an upside-down pyramid. An upside-down pyramids definitely fall over. First year of the Premier League, turnover of the Premier League was 45 million. Turnover of the EFL was 34 million. That's a gap of 11 million. The gap now is 3 billion. I think Rafa would acknowledge that with the Moores family, he actually had something quite special. And it's a be careful what you wish for. How much responsibility did you think the Premier League should have for a bailout. This is Upfront with me, Simon Jordan. I believe there are a lot of vacuous, uninformed, unchallenged opinions out there. I want to get to the bottom line and cut through the nonsense. So with this podcast with William Hill, I'm going to get people with strong views who think they can stand them up to proper scrutiny. There's a good chance I might learn something along the way. And more importantly, so might you. In today's episode, we'll be taking you through the corridors of power in a time of important debate for the future of football in this country. We'll assess the arguments around fit and proper club owners, the EFL's future amidst a Goliath Premier League, independent regulation, and we'll dissect potential challenges on the horizon engulfing world football. Who better to explain and much more with a man who was there at the very formation of the Premier League back in 92, a former Liverpool CEO, and now today, the EFL chairman, Rick Perry. Welcome to Upfront. Thank you. Rick, I think the most important question straight out of the gate, I think, to set up this conversation is, given what I've just said and your background and your influence over some very significant moments in football, how do you look at the landscape of football full stop at this moment in time? Um, mixture of challenges and opportunities. The game is in pretty good health. Overall, there are a huge amount of uh, pluses in front of us, but you know, again, challenges to be wary of. And and the, I think the game thrives despite those running it much of the time, including you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've made more mistakes than most people. So over the years, so uh, it's the resilience of the game and the you know the enduring appeal to the fans that is its greatest strength. Yeah. What do you think in your sort of top-down analysis are the biggest challenges that football has? The imbalances. In distributions. In terms of distribution. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you said, clearly my focus is on what's happening domestically. But you look at what's happening in the world game as yeah. well. Um, you well, look between at FIFA and FIFA UEFA. And UEFA yeah. um, you know, FIFA have pretty much handed the... Um, 2034 World Cup to Saudi, Saudi Arabia, yeah. despite all the changes to the rules, regulations, the increased transparency. Are you uncomfortable with it? The optics, you know, when, when you kind of give the next World Cup to three continents, so it means the next one has to go to Asia. It, it looks odd, particularly when it just comes out of the blue. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been trailed. Take you to the EFL, which is your domain at this moment in time. <clears throat> I mean, I was in the EFL for a lot longer than I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. The irony of the EFL, especially in the championship, is it's most of the time you want to get out of it if yeah, you've yeah. got any ambition. Yeah. Um, when, you refer, when you first arrived in 2019, what did you inherit? 
it wasn't a great place to be at the time. There was a lot of mistrust and ill feeling, and they'd just been through rows over the TV deal, um, okay. which you know it was ever thus with the EFL. Very much so. Yeah. Um, nothing new there. Um, but but I felt it just needed a bit of confidence and a bit of um, let's just be a bit bolder, let's be a bit braver, um, let's look at our strengths and, and build upon the strengths. Um, and as you said, there is a paradox in that the most attractive members of the FL don't want to be there, mm -hmm. which is absolutely understandable. But I think our philosophy was, let's try and pull all 72 together and keep them together and set the purpose right at the start within the FL of making clubs sustainable. Right. Which and I that agree applies with. at the top and the bottom. I agree with that. So yeah. that is a common link between Middlesbrough and Forest Green Rovers. Yeah, It's yeah. all about sustainability, reducing that dependence on, on an individual. funding. Yeah, absolutely right. Which is not to say you want to stifle ambition. It's not to say yeah. you don't want people to invest. It's that dependence on yeah. owner funding. And if you look at the championship, you know, it's 16 million a club. It's the most expensive lottery ticket on the mm. planet. Mm. It's just, it's insane. Yeah. Um, and so the whole focus was on trying to change that, which has not been easy and we're not there yet by any means but but when you do that then you unite people behind that common purpose and then although there are massive differences um size scale there are a lot of similarities too mm. um and you know the vast majority of the clubs uh, by no means all but the vast majority local ownership you know great people um doing brilliant well, jobs. Well, certainly one, I would say that's probably the case in League One and League Two, but I think probably in the Championship, you've got a mixed bag, haven't you? It is mixed, but yeah. you've got Steve Gibson at Middlesbrough, Absolutely. you've got the Coates family. You've got Steve Lansdowne at You've Bristol got City. the Hemmings yeah. family at yeah. um, Preston. So, you know, you've still got that yeah. running through. One of the things I always used to really get quite irritated with was this EFL, was this, this seeming tacit acceptance to be the runt of the litter, to be the second-class citizen, mm -hmm. even from the deals that were done with the broadcasters. And I don't mean trying to pair in and piggyback on the Premier League deals. I mean that the representation, it used to irritate me intensely, that the Premier League's uh, sort of uh, lead-up to a match was bells and whistles and stars. Ours was an old geezer with a rattle <laughs> in the EFL. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that this, there was this sort of limited ambition and limited outlook. And I'd sit in EFL meetings. And in, in the end, Rick... I would stop going. All 72 clubs had a vote. Mm -hmm. And so you'd be getting, as a championship club that had very different requirements, you'd be getting outvoted in significant issues by other clubs with different dimensions, like, like the solidarity payments that were offered in exchange for the EPP deal that was put through when the clubs gave up their compensation rights for a small amount of cash because the clubs in League One and League Two needed that cash and the championship clubs didn't. Do you still have that battleground? Uh, we might, but we don't at the moment because, as I said, the thing we've really tried to focus on is is keeping all the 72 together. Mm -hmm. The thing we've done best, single thing we've done best, I think is achieving that. The board works really well. We don't have splits. We don't have divisional splits on the board. We, we don't have, well, we haven't had any divisional splits in meetings. So, you know, classic example when we were trying to get money out of the Premier League for COVID yep. and the government was pushing them. Yep. And they gave 30 million initially to Leagues 1 and Leagues 2. They did, yeah. yeah. 
and nothing to the championship. Yep. Leagues one and leagues two said that's not fair. They didn't grab the money and say, well, we'll have that. They actually said, we are a league of 72 and we have to do what's right for everybody. And that was pretty commendable. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way we absolutely try to operate. Will, will we do it on every single issue? Who knows? Mm. Um, but, but if we, you start that culture, you might have a little bit of opportunity to continue it in, yeah, test, yeah. in testing moments. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is, that is for me, absolutely front and centre of what we need to try to do. That is the very strength of the EFL because, you know, and we do want people rising, falling up and down the pyramid. Mm. You know, the, the Luton's a brilliant story because Luton kind of sum up the pyramid. Back in 91, when we were just getting the Premier League underway, Luton were in the old first division. They mm -hmm. voted on the founder members agreement. They were a signatory to the founder members agreement. So they were very much a part of making the Premier League happen. Didn't play in it, got relegated. Lengthy period in the National League, mm -hmm. straight back up and into the Premier yeah. League. I mean, that's... Football is finest. You know, that's what English football should be yeah, yeah. about. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because do you hold the view, because I do, that there's a reason that the Premier League and English football is revered the way it is. And it isn't just because it's got 20 clubs in the Premier League, but the uniqueness of the English pyramid system, the uniqueness of our cups, the iconography <laughs> of our national stadium, all of all of these are pivotal parts of what sums up English football and what creates the Premier League. Do you do you concur with that view or do you say, no, 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 the Premier League is a phenomenon and the, the, the English Football League is what it is? No, I completely agree with that. And, you know... It... If you're going to build a pyramid, you need a broad base. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it falls over. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what we've got with the finances and distribution, we've got an upside-down pyramid. An upside-down pyramid yeah. definitely fall over. So, yeah, 100% agree with all the strengths of the English game. And, you know, if you look at attendances in League Two at the moment, well within the top 10 leagues in Europe, which Absolutely. is pretty astonishing. We've got Bradford getting 20,000 plus. We've got Stockport. We've got Wrexham getting 10,000 plus. I mean, attendance is at the highest since the 1960s. It's, um, you know, it. Th there are some really positive signs from top to bottom, but it, and but it matters so much that, as I said, those clubs are very much the beating heart of their communities um, it, within the smaller towns across north of England. So. Listen, every Premier League club does brilliant stuff for its communities, and some of them have worldwide communities, yeah. and I'm not decrying the Premier League in any way, shape, or form. But the impact of Accrington, Stanley, within Accrington, yeah. arguably is bigger than the impact of Manchester United within Manchester. Uh, yeah. A moment ago, you talked about the Premier League and the beginning of the Premier League, and of course, you were an instrumental figure in there, obviously, there was a will inside football for change. There was a need inside football for change. The ITV deal deals that had been done before weren't producing huge amounts of revenue. Football was in a very strange position in terms of its societal positioning because we had the hooliganism elements. And then there's you. You were brought in as one of the architects of the construction of the Premier League. Take people through how that manifests itself, how that, that, that breaking of eggs made an omelette. Well, it was a really exciting time um, and it happened unbelievably quickly. Right. Um, and the key to it was momentum. And mm -hmm. it was a creature initially of the big five. Yeah. 
Being um, who at that time? I think Everton were in that mix, weren't they? Because yeah, Carson Everton. So who would, have, who would have been the big five there? Spurs, Everton, Tottenham, Liverpool, Arsenal, Liverpool, Man United. Man U, yeah. Um, and you know, it's been well documented. They they were the big five who'd favoured ITV back yep. in eighty-eight. Yeah. The irony of how I became involved. This is an insane story. I'd been running Manchester's bid for the Olympic Games. Right. And I'd seen quite a lot of Graham Kelly because we were bringing VIP guests to Wembley and we were talking about New National Stadium. Um, Graham was chief executive of the FA then. Um, and we'd lost out the bid for Manchester. It, I mean, you can't have more fun than bidding for the Olympic Games in a job. It was unbelievable. But I had to think, am I going to do that again? And Manchester will probably lose again, or do I do something different? Um, and that was a big decision. Do I go with the heart? Do I go with the head? And a friend of mine, who'd just been made redundant, gave me a book called What Colour Is My Parachute? Um, where you fill in all sorts of charts and work out what your ideal job is. Mm -hmm. um, and being a massive football fan, I'd filled in all these charts, looked at all the stuff I'd done in my career, stuff I really enjoyed. And you kind of turn the handle and look at what the output is. And it says, your ideal job would be running a football league. I thought, well, that's ridiculous. That's not <laughs> happening. Chucked all the papers away. And the following week, Graham Kelly phoned and said, I know you've finished Olympic bidding, little project you might be interested in. Um, can we meet? Mm -hmm. But it's top secret. And Graham said, look, the big five have been to see me. Ironically, the FA might be receptive. Mm -hmm. We would never have been normally. And again, this is this is entirely true. That in the summer of '92, the Football League had prosecuted Swindon Town for financial irregularities. They'd just been promoted from second division to the first division. Uh, first time ever, which is massive for them. But the league discovered financial irregularities, had a disciplinary commission, demoted them to the third division. Swindon appealed to the FA, which was the process in those days. Mm -hmm. So England have just reached the semi-final of the World Cup. Of the World Cup. Mm -hmm. So they take the entire council out to watch the World Cup semi-final, right. apart from three who were either too old or too infirm to travel. They formed the appeal committee for Swindon. <laughs> Sounds about right. Totally misunderstood the case. Yep, sounds about right. And demoted them from the first division to the second division, which is where they were in the first place. FA didn't have a clue what to do. They knew they probably ought to react, but they couldn't think how. And then suddenly the big five approached them to mm -hmm. say, we're thinking about a breakaway. So Graham says, that's interesting, because our relations with the Football League are at a pretty low ebb. Mm -hmm. I quite enjoy doing this talk at business schools where people do strategy and planning and thinking about things. And he said, well, the biggest change in England football didn't come about as a result of a strategic plan. It was this coincidence of mm -hmm. interests. The big series of unintended wanting consequences, to yeah. break away because of TV dealings, the FA suddenly at a low ebb with the Football League mm -hmm. and that amazing coincidence. Of, so that's how it all mm -hmm. happened. And Graham approached me to say, look, I've told the big five that when you look at what happened in the 80s, there was talk about breakaways. It hadn't been thought through. Nobody knew what the plan was. So I've said to them, approach us with a proper plan yeah, and advise them to hire you. 
Mm -hmm. And so I got hired to help put the plan together. Right. And the rest is downhill from there, I guess. Don't know about that. Did you have any meaningful resistance from any significant clubs in terms of the 22 clubs that were brought to the table <laughs> by the by the by the genesis of the thought process from five big clubs and the FA's involvement, or or was there just a general accord? This is the moment. This is the opportunity. If the momentum is here, let's take it. There was a really strong accord. Um, there there was a lot of hostility to the big five. Yep, that's what I, I mean. The it point, was yeah. extraordinary, but at the same time, people were pragmatic and realised we actually do need yep. them. Uh, because they do drive audiences yep. and yep. we do... That's the commercial reality of it. Yep. We do understand that. But, and you have to respect the big five, in a sense, for compromising at that stage. As I said, the messages that came to me from the other 17 were, we'll go for this, but only, only if we don't repeat the mistakes that we got in the Football right. League. So no TV subcommittees. Yeah. Independent board. Transparency. Uh, absolute simplicity of voting the antithesis of what the Football League was. And they said, if we can achieve that, yes, we will go along with it. And the first manifestation of that, to show that it was real, was, of course, the vote on the Sky deal yep. when the Big Five were outvoted. Right. Because their plan was, ITV. was to have ITV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I bore the brunt of their, their wrath yeah. um, on the basis I'd been brought in to help them and what did I think I was doing, doing the right thing for the game as a whole. But you were um, right, weren't you? Well, I think subsequently events events have shown. And, you know, interestingly, though, we looked at a lot of American um, ideas and innovations. Um, first thing we did with the TV was to bring Match of the Day back, which had disappeared. Um, so we wanted Match of the Day. And then we were thinking... But that's an interesting one because that that's, that's a BBC institution. Yeah. You're, you're talking to Rupert Murdoch and that scenario to build out a broadcast platform that's going to do for the Premier League what it's obviously ultimately done. But we would never have had the Premier League with Sky only. We would never have done that. We needed that terrestrial, terrestrial anchor. Yeah, yeah. But looking at the American sports, we were really taken with the idea of Monday night football, yep. expanding the weekend, really yep. smart, yep. worked yep. brilliant. And, and listen, you know, we had no qualms about pinching other people's ideas. If they were the best ideas are often other people's, aren't the they? The good ones. Yeah. Um, and the original concept was, we'll have ITV on a Sunday and we'll have Sky on a Monday. Okay. S Sky at first would have loved that because that would have given them the, the, the entry. ITV's attitude was, now nah, we can't do that because we've got to kill satellite. We can't do anything that's yeah. going to. Uh, and it by the way, competition, yeah. we will have enough votes. We will win. Yeah. And as time unfolded, Sky got quite irritated with, with by that, and they became bolder, and they said, "Well, I tell you what, we'll really go for it. Yeah, we will go for broke on this." And Gib Murdoch is due, mm. and we went to ITV numerous times and said, "What about a joint venture on satellite? Um, satellites coming. Um, you can be a part of it." But you know, they were buying motorway service stations and diversifying. Granada, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Murdoch had this laser-like focus and bet the house on mm -hmm. it. He absolutely bet yeah. the house on it. You know, it, he he was probably within hours of. He could have gone bust over it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Sky were turning over 
I think it was turning over about 230 million back in 91, losing 180 million, mm. which is pretty chilling. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow said, you know what? All in. We're going to go for this, yeah. all in on this Premier League and the battering ram. And as Sam Chisholm, uh, his inimitable first New Zealand um, chief executive hewn out of solid granite, said it, Sky and the Premier League was the greatest corporate romance of all time. Where, where are the FA in all this? Because I have a major problem with the FA and I have a major problem with the independent regulator and the FA is abdicating a responsibility from being the de facto regulator. And we'll talk about that shortly. But in the construction of the Premier League, the FA have an integral part in allowing it to happen, have a voting criteria within the confines of it. But they don't seem to have ever utilised it. It's now we've got a situation where the tail wags the dog. Where did the FA subsequently have leverage, have relevance in domestic football to such an extent now where I would make the accusation that they have none? Because the big five weren't trusted, we also said, why don't we make it the FA Premier League? That's my point. You take yeah. the lead. Yeah. And we'll bring... I mean, I came in as a complete outsider and like many, a lifelong football fan, football fanatic, but never understood why we've got a football league and an FA, why we've got one in the north of England, one day, what, what's the point? Why can't we bring it all under one roof? And that was the idea, FA Premier League. Uh, and the first meeting of the clubs, FA called the 22 clubs to a meeting at Lancaster Gate, unveiled the Premier League. It was going to be 18 clubs. Mm -hmm. It was going to be a reduction to help the England team um, reduce the clutter of the fixtures. And the first question from the floor, ironically, came from <laughs> the chairman of the International Committee, who you might have expected to be thinking of the national team's interest, but said, 18 clubs, is that compulsory? And if Sir Bert Millichip had just said, yes, it is, I think we'd have just moved on. But this is the first question at the first meeting. And Sir Bert says, it's your league, you will decide. And Graham Kelly and I looked at each other and thought, what? Mm. And later in the meeting, uh, we'd kind of gone through the ideas. And Ron Node said, it, it's really interesting, but we ought to go away and meet and we'll decide what we want to do. Now, again, if the FA had said, no, 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 this is, this is our show. It's our league. This is what we're doing. Yeah. But it, again, instead of which, Sir Bert, who was a great gentleman, I mean, lovely, lovely person, said, yeah, not a problem. Oh. And, and why don't you borrow our council chamber for the meeting? Mm -hmm. um, the clubs are meeting and doing precisely weekly what want. Yeah. and saying, well, we don't want to be part of the FA because, and there was a valid point that said, well, hang on. Our TV rights, if we're if we're just operating as a committee of the FA, where, where does the money go? I mean, how do we know that we're going to get our fair share? Um, we actually want separate legal personality. We, we should have a separate company. Mm -hmm. And we don't want the FA on the board. And I have to go to Graham Kelly and said, Yeah, we don't want much to do with you. We don't really want to be in the FA, yeah. um, but you can have a special share yeah. uh, with certain limited voting rights. And the FA agreed. Yeah. Um, you think that was a mistake? I didn't at the time because clearly, you know, I, I was representing the Premier League. The Premier League. Yeah. 
But for um, the good of the game, it was a mistake. But for him. the good of the game, if the FA had stood firm right at the start, what would the clubs have done? Where would they have... They wouldn't have had anywhere else to no, go. Exactly. So, so, yeah, I mean, the FA pretty much handed the keys over mm. at the start. I want to take you to COVID um, and look at the landscape of football. You and I had a debate on another platform about big picture. Mm -hmm. But there was obviously a, a lot of noise around that clubs were going to go to the wall. Did you fear, really fear, rather than sabre rattling to make sure that football got attention and there was a proper set of dialogue, did you fear that there was going to be a lot of clubs that would go bust? No. no. Why? Uh, because you didn't have time for fear. I mean, the interesting thing with COVID was there was no manual. No. Bearing in mind the cash flow of TV deals, um, you you tend to have quite a lot of money up front. Yeah. And the Football League actually had quite a lot of money sitting in its bank account. Right. And we had a meeting and I didn't think that horrified the executive a little bit at the time. We said, listen, we've got to do something to show that we're actually helping. Mm. How much have we got? Come on, really tell me how much have we absolutely got? And we said, well, we'll give 50 million to clubs, repayable. Mm. Um, but we need to make a gesture. We need to do something to show that, listen, don't panic. So we got money out to clubs. And we then had a tough decision to take in terms of Leagues 1 and Leagues 2. And again, this is back to my point of the 72 to have got everybody playing again that first season would have been incredibly challenging. Um, but we had to make sure that Leagues 1 and Leagues 2 didn't become irrelevant or yeah. disappear. So we're actually going to somehow or other make the playoffs work. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have to take a view on the tables as they stand. Mm -hmm. Needed to keep the championship going, um, clearly, because at the top... It was really important that we had the three up and three down. And there were moves within the Premier League from some clubs that we won't name to uh, to have no relegation. I which, can imagine, yeah. Which would have been um, pretty catastrophic. Um, we tried to get wage deferrals um, with the PFA, which inevitably was challenging. Um, I mean, I... I... I, I'm more robust than you and you might have to be a bit more political, but I, 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 I'm beyond my level of tolerance with the PFA and what they bring to the game. Yeah, I think I am more tolerant and uh, take a slightly more rounded view um, because we did get quite a lot of deferrals and, you know, there is a point at League One, League Two, these are not wealthy superstars. Mm. These are, you know... Absolutely solid professionals yeah. who have mortgages to pay, bills to pay. Um, they don't have necessarily massive savings. So I think we've got to keep it in balance. Um, and we did get some deferrals. And the reality is the clubs did all come through it. Mm -hmm. How much responsibility did you think, given the government, because we discussed in 2020, why aren't you going getting it from the government and why are the arts getting it and why mm -hmm. can't you get it? And you said, well, I don't know, you asked the government. Uh, and the reality is the government thinks that the Premier League should be doing something. How much responsibility did you think the Premier League should have for a bailout mentality? Uh, a lot more than they did, for sure. 
the thing I was most disappointed about, I have to say, was government's response to big picture, because that was, for me, the short-term solution, because there was 250 million quid available for COVID and the long-term solution. Um, and 250 million was always our ask in terms of the lost gate receipts at EFL level. Um, and of course, gate receipts, much more important proportionately at EFL level than they are at Premier League level. But as it turned out, they all survived by hook or by crook. Mm. Owners dug deep through it. I mean, there were ironies with, you know, Bristol City, Steve Lansdowne, mm. um, couldn't get money for football, but got money for his rugby club. Mm. And you try explaining that to government and their sort of eyes glazed over and what we don't understand the difference. Do you think, well, okay. Um, no, I had conversations with Oliver Dowden and, and I got that impression that it was just a, a one-dimensional myopic view. The Premier League has so yeah. much money, that's the end of the discussion. But when you say the <clears> Premier <throat> League, you felt disappointed the Premier League could have done more. I mean, is there really, in your mindset, this correlation between what Sheikh Mansur at Man City thinks he should do for Del Vince at Forest Green Rovers? Well, this goes back to where we were a, a while ago in terms of the fabric of English football mm. and its relevance and its importance. Now, you could mount an argument that actually it's two separate leagues and each should look after its own interests. Yep. And I wouldn't agree, but I could understand I can that understand argument. argument as well, yep. And if you look at where we were in 92-93, turnover of the Premier League was 45 million. Turnover of the EFL was 34 million. That's a gap of 11 million. Mm. You know, that's bridgeable. That's doable. The gap now is 3 billion. The EFL's turnover is 6% of the Premier League's level, and yet we're still supposed to be operating mm -hmm. a pyramid. It's too much of a chasm. And if the Premier League were to argue, you know, the Steve Parrish argument, well, supermarkets don't subsidize the corner shop okay but then the premier league completely and utterly undermines that argument by paying parachute payments to a selected group the parachute payment argument I, that you have and you're quite robust on it i can understand why you are but i also i don't agree with it because i i, I think parachute payments being paid to clubs to give them an opportunity to get into the Premier League, compete in the Premier League, not damage themselves behind, beyond irreparable harm economically by trying to stay there, at the same time as not diminishing the core product, which is the value of the Premier League in all its parts, has to be underpinned by some form of safety net. If you look at the Championship, 75% of the money that comes from the Premier League goes to the parachute clubs. Right. And let's look at the turnover of the championship clubs in 2020-21. So the average turnover of the non-parachute clubs is... 20 million? 14 million. Is it 14 million? Right. The average turnover of the parachute clubs is 50 million. Mm -hmm. It's three times. But what's the average wage bill? Yeah, but <laughs> it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Because it's the income that gives you the ability to fund the wage bill which then makes you more competitive i mean the the reality is six teams have been in the premier league forever yeah 14 you know the other 14 come and go 
Luton became the 51st club um, to play in the Premier League. So there have been three clubs for every one place in the Premier League. But if you take a snapshot at the moment, the 14 non-top six clubs are sharing 1.9 billion of TV income from the Premier League. The 19 non-parachute clubs in the championship are sharing uh, 170 million. Yeah. Less than 10%. Yeah, yeah. I would argue, I can't prove it, but nobody has disproved it and no, nobody's actually said you're talking complete rubbish. You, you might and we might disagree on it. I would actually say that you could take 14 clubs from the championship, swap them with the 14 in the Premier League and there'd be no diminution in the Premier League's TV deal value. What the Premier League says is, when you come up, we need you to be able to compete. Well, if the cliff edge wasn't so big in the first place, which and is, I think is, you touched on this, yeah. it'd be an awful lot easier for them to compete when they went up, and then they wouldn't face financial catastrophe when they came down. Fine, but there's no appetite for the parachute payment argument whatsoever. So we're sort of whistling in the wind. What the argument now <clears> is about is about distribution and the overall distribution situation, and then underpinning governance because ultimately it's all well and good having distributions yeah. that are greater if they're still able to football club owners to do precisely what they want, yeah. how they want, yeah. without any kind of covenant over the top of them to make them operate properly as sustainable businesses. Because yeah. I find mm-hmm. the football industry remarkably immature in the idea that the governance is how much money you're allowed to lose. Correct. Most industries would look at that and go, "Well, that's absurd." Yeah, you've got to be sustainable. You can't be independent. You've got to be independent. The business should run off its own cash flows, and and every now and again, if there's capital expenditure that needs to be invested in the business for legitimate reasons, then an owner can step <clears> in <throat> and do that. Stadium rebuilds, academy developments, whatever else. But that leads me in to the fit and proper persons test. A lot of people ruminate on this and look at you guys and say, "What are you doing? How are you allowing these people through the door?" And how are these circumstances happening mm-hmm. in Macclesfield and Berry? I spoke to the guy from Berry. He was a buffoon who shouldn't have been anywhere near a football club. How, how difficult is it for you? Because you would have never stopped a Mel Morris walking through the door, would you? Under the fit and proper persons test. Um, Mel, Mel Morris at Derby, Derby County. For yeah, time. Mel uh, would have passed every test yep. with flying colours. Um, we've been a lot tougher with fit and proper persons over the last three or four years. I think that there was probably a bit of a culture of we don't want to be turning anybody down because we can't have any clubs going bust. Um, we did have a major flaw in the rules, which led directly to Berry, um, which looking back is fairly ridiculous, but yeah. we did tighten that loophole because the new owners didn't have to provide evidence of the source and sufficiency of funding until mm. two weeks after they yeah. bought the club. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Isn't it? So we changed that. Yeah. And funnily enough, um, you know that worked wonders. And again, you can you can you can get too hung up on should we have subjectivity tests with fit and proper persons? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a red herring because if you focus on source and sufficiency of funding, so show me the money. Don't send me a note from a bank yeah. in Antigua. Show me you got it. Show me the money yeah. and how much you've got. And have you got sufficient to fund yeah. your business plan? That yeah. doesn't half yeah. separate the, the decent the ones. Yeah. Yeah. And we have been turning down, I'm not going to name names, no. but you know, 
we've been bold enough to just say no. Yeah. But the clubs haven't gone bust because little by little we found better people. European Super League. Mm -hmm. You would have watched this the same way that I did. <clears throat> if your timing was different, you might have been a person in, in, in the conversation. What did you, because obviously of your role at Liverpool, we'll talk about it in a second. Mm -hmm. What did you make to the whole European Super League debacle? I likened it to a group of people going into a boxing fight that got off their stall and then decided they're going to sit back down again before anyone threw a punch. I thought it was ludicrous <laughs> and laughable. Mm. Bearing in mind, these were the clubs that I've been in dialogue with over big picture. Yeah. And understood some of their frustrations. I don't think they were all going into it simply to say, how can we get some more money? Because they're getting a load of money. Um, the logic of English clubs doing it when we are so far ahead of every other league in so Europe. So wait a minute, you think they would... Not, I would have I would have leapt to the conclusion and still do that the primary function was revenue generation. You're suggesting that that's, that they don't like the governance that yeah. we've been put under and actually it was creating an opportunity to be, to be without some <clears throat> of the government's perspectives of UEFA. Yeah. But listen, I wasn't involved in the in the debate at any stage so I don't know but I do know what the frustrations were when we were talking about big picture and why they wanted change I don't think their motivations for change would have shifted that much but the, I mean the the execution was a nonsense yeah. it was a bad idea it was a bad idea badly executed which is a pretty you know deadly combination what, because why, why do you think it's a bad idea what because of the lack i mean what was what was the most offensive part of it because i i oh, don't the, the lack of promotion relegation the meritocracy. because listen front and center dreams hopes aspirations is yes. what football is all about so if you take the meritocracy argument out of the way of it then there's not a fundamental issue with it is there i think it's at least an issue you then say well let's explore it and yeah. let's see whether there is something to be discussed but that as you said opportunity never arose because it killed itself before and that was the most bizarre thing because you almost want to say to the clubs well stand up and defend it but it was laughable explain it? it yeah i mean i i almost admire a, a sort of the clubs that have said no 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 we're staying with it i think it's quite laughable the way that manchester city and chelsea decided to behave what was the point you know you almost virtue signaling <clears throat> yourself back out of a problem that you created for yourself in the first place what they've done the Super League was always there as a threat. Mm -hmm. It was always there. If UEFA don't come to the party, we will go off and form a Super League. They, yeah. They've now killed the threat. So they've just lost the bargaining chip. So what? So by that token, when I mean, they're still running it around, aren't they? They're still flying, are, they're still flying up flagpoles and they're, and they're getting some success legally in terms of UEFA's ability to stop them from doing certain things. So with that in mind... Do you think it will come again? Because I think it will. I think it might. I mean, who knows what, you know, who knows what the Saudis might do? They bought golf. Mm. But not to be even thinking about what might happen is, you know, and to be complacent, that, that would be a massive, massive mistake mm. because, you know, as we said, the pace of change in football is relentless, you know, I mean, could you have a world league? Could could you just... Because again, if you look back to when we formed the Premier League, why did we form a domestic league at all? Well, it was all driven by TV boundaries, in a sense. You know, why? Why? what was the logic in it only being an English Premier League or an Italian league? It it, it was the old broadcasting definitions of where, where your signal was broadcast, how the 
broadcasters were regulated. You know, all of all of that's gone. You know, if if a big if, but if Apple came along, yeah, and suddenly said, and you know, there was an interesting stat I used to use years ago. You know, Premier League has been massively successful with Sky. Sky have done it on around ten million okay. subscribers. Yeah, Apple was selling ten million iPads a quarter. Yeah, so if Apple suddenly decided, you know what, football. Would they do it territory by territory, or would they say we'll do something global? I, I, listen, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea, and I'm not propagating the idea. I'm definitely not promoting it, but I am saying we probably should be aware that yeah. there might be ideas being generated that none of us have even Amazon, thought of. Amazon in the same conversation. Exactly. Why would Amazon only go for the Premier League? Why would they not go for a European league or, in, you know, some sort of world competition? I, we just don't know. No. What do you think of American ownership <clears throat> models? Classic English approach. Did we ever sit down and say, is foreign ownership good or bad? Yeah. No. No. It just happened. Mm. Now, that kind of reflects England. I did a thing for Goldman Sachs in, in New York with Jim O'Neill a few years ago yep. um, on football. He was a very smart man. By yeah, way. very. liked him enormously and was talking about this whole approach to um, foreign ownership and lack of regulation. And and just as you said, he said, listen, that's English society. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you look at what, you look at London buildings, you look at Harrods, you look at... Who owns them? Yeah. You know, we invite everybody in. Makes you weep, doesn't it? And Germans like being regulated. So the Bundesliga just reflects German society. Yep. It's, it's, yep. it's a different approach. We're very laissez-faire. We're let the market decide. What but you wouldn't have 75% of the clubs in the Bundesliga owned by, in inverted commas, no, foreigners. you wouldn't. And you wouldn't have it in America either. Where are you on football being leveraged for causes? Because I think football was purpose-built for entertainment, was for escapism. And why does it want to get itself involved in causes? Yeah, I think we've got to... I mean, I think the time has absolutely come where we've just got to think it through Yeah, properly. I, you know... And in a sense, it started with the poppy campaign. Mm -hmm. um, we'd managed for 100 years without poppies being... And listen, I'm a massive supporter of the poppy campaign. And, and I think it's a could not argue against it. But why do they have to be on football shirts yeah. all of a sudden when they hadn't been for 100 years? And the hardest word to say in football, as you well know, in many environments, is no. Is no. Yeah. The convenient one is... Well, yes, okay, we'll we'll allow that to happen, and it's the path of least resistance. And things go too far, and yeah. then you have to sit down and say, well, you know. Somebody once said to me, he said, the trouble with football is you you measure progress with a pendulum rather than a barometer. <laughs> okay. It's one extreme yeah. or the other. Yeah. It's never a progression, and and that's always stuck with me. And. And somebody else once said, you know, the football's a bit like a drunken man. It knows it's had too much to drink because it falls over. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't sort of anticipate. And and suddenly they then have to, you know, sit down and say, well, this has gone too far. So maybe we now have to retrench and start all over again, as opposed to thinking through the consequences a little bit mm. earlier. Well, given the fact you've said almost a Shankleyism. Transcending life, football is you know much more important than life and death. 
Let's talk about Liverpool to finish off this conversation between you and I. Obviously, Liverpool is a is a is one of the most iconic football clubs in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you you were in there as the CEO from '98 to 2010. Um, talk to me about your experiences with Liverpool. Um, what it's like being the CEO of undoubtedly one of the most iconic clubs in <clears throat> English football and I think in world football. I mean, wouldn't have missed it for the world. You're a Liverpool fan, right? Yeah, Liverpool fan, which, again, it magnifies everything. So the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Yeah. And there's never anything in between. Mm -hmm. There are no shades of grey. Um, most of it I loved. Um, obviously, massively regret that we didn't win the Premier League. Of course. Um, came close twice, but... European Cup in there. And we should have won it in 2009. Yeah, I mean, European Cup was... I mean, it was mad. It was just astonishing that we won that yeah. with the team that we had. Yeah. Um, actually, for me, 2001 was more enjoyable, the treble. Right, that was Julio, right? Julio, because yeah. we kicked off with the League Cup in February. And it is brilliant winning a cup in February because mm -hmm. the celebration kind of starts yeah. and it builds. And then we had that insane final week um, where we won the, you know, we won the FA Cup um, against the odds. I mean, Art Arsenal battered us, mm -hmm. um, played us off the park and Michael Owens, two late goals. And then three days later, we're off in Dortmund. We should have battered Alaves, but the, the, the team were dead on their feet and... So somehow we end up with a silver goal. I mean, we were brilliant value for finals because we yeah. never won a final easily. Um, and then we have to go to Charlton on the final day to get into the Champions League. And first half, Charlton are battering us. And because, again, we just run out of legs, run out of gas. And that second half, Robbie Fowler came good and we win 4-0. So that six months was just there's so many memories building on each other and beating barcelona in uh, in the um uefa cup and beating roma and beating everton in the most dramatic circumstances it was just it was just amazing whereas istanbul was kind of i mean a stunning game but so much kind of against the odds that we got there in the first place that you almost didn't take it in it was just it was almost just yeah just unreal but but fabulous um but yeah i mean it, it was um and it was harder than running a premier league i mean running a top club is i was gonna ask difficult. you that because i i have a mixed emotions of being an owner you know i i made a lot of money <clears throat> i ended up running out of it in the biggest banking crisis that took me down and put me in a big position i end up writing it all off and letting people like parish make a lot of money <laughs> off my deeds that's the way the world goes i've accepted my medicine but i did have a dim view of chief executives in football. I felt that they most of the time got jobs in certain spaces because they because they were in some, somehow involved in the football world. And I also felt that they were in a very difficult role because they 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 were divested of all the authority because they didn't have control of the money. Money controls things. But in your in your instance and in instances because you're you're a grown up in this conversation and in most conversations, we might disagree ideologically and, th and philosophically about things, but we're, there's a conversation to be had with someone you, like you, mm -hmm. and I can learn a lot from it. I didn't think I learned a lot from many of the chief executives I encountered. And I'm seeing the quality of chief executives really raise. Now I see people like Paul Barber, and these are proper 
chief executives that understand the responsibility. They're very fortunate they get to work for very decent owners like Tony Bloom that are very committed. But what do you think, in football terms, makes a very good chief executive? Well, I was fortunate in having a wonderful owner in David Moores. You, you couldn't... I didn't like him very much, by the way. I liked him I a didn't lot. Li I didn't like being given a. I didn't like being given a pendant by David Moores in the boardroom at Liverpool in the 2001 League Cup semi-final, saying this is what we give to all the small clubs when they come here. I didn't much like that, Rick. I didn't enjoy that. Well, okay, I have a different view, of David, because David was a brilliant chairman to work for. Yep. Cared passionately about the club, put the club way in front of his own interests. Yeah, uh, lifelong fan. Um, completely supportive. You know, I've talked about purpose uh, being really important. And it, it, it sounds like a statement of the obvious, but often stating the obvious frequently helps. Our purpose at Liverpool was winning trophies. Yeah. Uh, and we hadn't won any for quite a long time. Um, and Gerard bought into that completely. So um, if you look at the first season, I was involved with Gerard, 2000, 2001. Obviously, getting into the Champions League mattered. But the start of the season, we sat down with the players at the training camp and said, we're going to talk purpose. We're going to talk about what we're all here for. We're going to talk about winning silverware. So, And that then comes down to team selection in the cup competitions and mm. and the priorities and, and, and not using the League Cup as an opportunity to field the youth team. Um, Always a tricky balance, but you know. But as a chief executive, you'd have not much jurisdiction in that area, though, would you? Getting the dynamics right in football. If you've got the manager, the chief executive, and the owner, stroke chairman, all on the same page Aligned, and yeah. pulling in the same direction, yeah. you've got a you've really got good chance. A really good chance. Yeah. Which then kind of contrasting that with how we any ever achieved anything with Hicks and Gillette is. Well, that's is, my question next. Yeah. Is one of life's great mystery so having everybody aligned in what we're trying to achieve massively important um but as how I'd, quickly into their involvement did you think christ what have i got here uh the day before they took over <laughs> okay. the day before they took over because we uh we had a press conference to announce it um we'd known george for quite a long time um david actually got to quite like george uh he was a decent fella very likable um, we'd been over to see his ice hockey team uh, and he just gave us free reign. He literally gave us the keys and said, just wander around, talk to anybody. And, and that was quite commendable. Um, and then he brought Tom Hicks in literally a week before. So we, did, we hadn't met Tom. We didn't really know Tom. They had done business together. So we have the, we're planning for the press conference to announce the deal. And we had a very professional PR advisor who was teeing the whole thing up. Uh, and it's a big announcement, massive announcement for Liverpool, the Moores family. So it's, 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 yep. it's huge. It's, you know, it is an icon. It has to be done properly. So we're kind of doing the briefing on don't ever call them the Liverpool Reds. Don't mention franchise, you know, all the things you have to do yeah, with them. Yeah. Um, all the missteps the Americans could make. The Americans yeah. might make. Yeah. And they said, right, running order, probably best if Rick starts because he can explain why the club came to the position uh, of needing to sell. No problem with that. And George, you should go second because you've been around for six months. And Tom Hicks said, I'm going second. If he goes first, I'll never get a word in Edwidge. <laughs> okay. And I'm honestly, at that point, what I'm thinking, what, we doing here? what is going on here? 
and you know when your first instincts yeah, you are negative, yeah, yeah. it's generally right. They're not always right when they're positive, but when they're negative, and you, and back to that need for togetherness, they were 50-50, absolute 50-50. There were no deadlock provisions. That was the source of many, many challenges later. You lead me into Rafa. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I have to say, I'm not an admirer. I think he's one of the most divisive football managers around. Um, you had explicit experience of him, and I think challenges with him. We had some really good times. Yeah. Um, well, 2005. 2005. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So he's, you know, he's got a place in Liverpool's history. Um, did brilliantly, and as a coach, you know, if you, if if you wanted to hire somebody to set up a team to win a particular game. Rafa would be right up there. Yeah. Um, absolutely gets it. And I think Rafa would acknowledge, um, perhaps grudgingly, I think he would acknowledge that with the Moores family, he actually had something quite special. Mm -hmm. um, and it's to be careful what you wish for. I think with Rafa, it was we need new investment. We want to be competing. We want to win. And we all wanted to win. Um. I think Rafa, in the right environment and with the right structure, with an owner and chief executive and him aligned, is yeah. great. But isn't alignment with Rafa Benitez defined by him? No, not no. I think if if there's a chink, if there's a weakness... He'll exploit it. He may try to exploit it. I think if the boundaries are clear... Yep. Then... In his lane. He's fine. And th the thing I would never, never challenge Raffaron was his passion was all about success yeah. and winning and we were completely and utterly aligned on that what did you make of his I mean that people paraphrase it as his iconic rant about facts and Sir Alex Ferguson you're sitting as chief executive are you going what 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 what, what or, or are you going you know fill your boots Raffer, if you want to no do that, no no boot. no mate and and it's quite interesting because we were playing away at Stoke in a uh, in a morning game and if we'd won we'd have gone top we'd have gone ahead of United again Rafa had actually been um, off sick over Christmas with um, had a very painful kidney stone and we'd actually done really well Sammy Lee took temporary right. charge and we'd battered Bolton at home we'd gone up and won four at Newcastle and then Rafa came back that that game at Stoke was all about opportunity for us to get three points and, and we drew nil-nil terrible game uh, and it was quite interesting that some of the leading players are thinking why is it about him this should be about the team yeah and big occasion for us or do it after the game yeah you know do it yeah when we've actually built something and yeah. achieved something but piling that pressure on what what is the point why do you think you did it oh i've no idea no I have no idea because he didn't tell us in advance, which would be typical Rafa. And there wasn't a lot of point in saying, what did you do that for? Because the moment has has gone. And, you know, as we'd seen with Kevin Keegan years before, what would the reaction be from Fergie? He'd have fallen about laughing yeah. and thought, got you. Got you. Yeah. When you look at Liverpool now under FSG and with Klopp, who, are, by yeah. the way, I think is... A fabulous manager. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on it? 
I think we've done brilliantly. Yeah. Um, in the the European Cup win was was terrific, and um, and I think the owners have done it. They've definitely done it with a sustainable model. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely about. They don't want to lose money. Um, they're not in it to make profit. They're in it to build long term value. They're in it to win. I think they're honestly. I think they're really really good owners. And listen, the the fans give them stick because the fans want to be competing with mm -hmm. with Man City and the sovereign states. But the owners have had that patience and the courage to say if it's going to take longer it will take it will take longer and you know it took them a few years to get the measure of it but i think the fact that they were not hicks and gillette yeah. gave them a lot of credit in the bank with the yeah. fans yeah. and they were much more patient but th listen they get criticized by the fans yeah. now which you know i just think is short-sighted and we know that Short fans memories. are short-sighted yeah. demanding yeah. but it it is and is it just the minority on but social media. A lot but... of it's, it's social media, isn't it? A lot of it's media. I mean, we both know, you and I, for whatever reason, <clears> and I, I occupy some space in the media, but on my terms, so I don't play the game that the media does. It's divisive. It creates yeah, yeah. division and misrepresents, and most of the time it's vacuous, uninformed opinions, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's what they need to be pushed back on. Well, even with Hicks and Gillette, one, one of the local patch journalists from one of the national titles used to say, 500 people have marched against Hicks and Gillette. 45,000 people actually haven't. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's the marches, it's the noise that grab. Well, you the, know that. The headlines it's the vociferous minority yeah, yeah. in every walk of life. Last question. Mm -hmm. As we sit here today, as the chair of the EFL, how confident are you that the things that you're put, you put in place and the things that you will put in place are going to lead to a, a, a far more positive future for 72 valuable football <clears throat> clubs? Um, I don't think it's the things I've put in place. I think it's the things that... Well, you're the clubs, chair. Yeah. It's but, you're the chair. Yeah, but... You can be self-effacing if you want. You, you are the chair. It, the credit will go to the clubs for taking the big decisions and the right decisions. But um, I've sat in a room, Rick, with 72 other clubs, and I know what it takes to lead. From the from the EFL, I've been remarkably critical over the years. I was remarkably critical of Keith Harris and David Burns, God rest his soul, because I thought they were useless. I was critical of other people. I didn't think Sean Harvey was up to the job. I admired Brian Mulwiney at times because he was a politician. He could negotiate his way through certain things, but I didn't think he did a great job with solidarity. But you also, the solidarity payments and what he <clears> gave away in exchange for that and the short-sightedness of people's mindsets from lower divisions. But you are on the cusp of an opportunity to create a a, a, a a change in the way that football clubs operate in the in the EFL, proper disciplines in place, proper opportunity to finance, and then they've got no excuse. Mm -hmm. Is that how you see it? Yeah, yeah, and I think we'll get there. Uh, but I believe in the owners, and I believe in their commitment. And as I said, we, you know, the last three weeks, and I, and I could show you correspondence from clubs saying very, very clearly, and we put out a statement to clubs following the last board meeting that we're absolutely committed to making sure that new funding goes into making the clubs sustainable yeah. and reduces that owner funding commitment. There's a there's a, a massive dose of realism, people doing the right thing. We've got, I mean, listen, we've got a few owners that are challenging, a few yeah. clubs that are challenging, but we've got some fabulous owners across the piece. I mean, brilliant. And 
you know, that they deserve a great future because of the effort yeah. they put in and the commitment they make. I think that's right. Anyway, listen, during the course of this conversation, you and I have agreed to disagree on a few things, but I've enjoyed it. And I'm very much grateful for you being so upfront with me. Thanks Thank you. Me. Cheers. Upfront with me, Simon Jordan, is brought to you by William Hill. Future episodes can be found on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 18 plus, please gamble responsibly.